In Genesis 48, we will be coming to the end of the life of Jacob or Israel. Depends which name you like better for him. But we come to the end of his life. We'll see his final moments, the final words he has to say to his family. I don't know how old you are or how much you think about death, but sometimes we think about, man, what are the last things that I'm going to say before I pass away, right? What are going to be those things? Am I going to give this huge part of wisdom to my family? Am I going to be saying, what does this button do? Am I going to be saying, what's the worst that could happen, right? What are our last words going to be here on earth? And Jacob, he gives us great insight that even though he had a rough life, he had a pretty rough life. In the chapter before, as he's speaking with Pharaoh, he says, the years of my life, it's been 140 years, and it's been hard. It hasn't been that easy of a life. Jacob, he's been through a lot, and and just wanting to go through some of those bullet points of the difficulties in his life. So we can remember that in the midst of such a difficult life, all we see him doing is giving wisdom to his family, reminding his family about what the Lord wants to do in them, what the Lord has done for them, reminding them sin versus being right with the Lord. So again, Jacob's life was hard, but yet in the end, he's focused on God's blessing and care for his life. In the end, he's giving thanks to God after all that he's been through. Jacob, he was a twin, right? He had his big brother Esau, and Esau was his brother's favorite son. Flat out, point blank. He would say it. Everybody in the family knew it. So again, right from the beginning, he's got daddy issues. He's not his favorite. The dad would rather go out fishing with Esau and leave Jacob behind at home with mom. Later on, his mother would come up with a plan. His father, Isaac, he thinks he's about to die. He's blind. He thinks he's on his deathbed. And yet his mom would come up with a plan to trick his dad on his deathbed and take the blessing away from his brother Esau. After that, his brother Esau hated him so badly that the only way Esau said he would find comfort in life is by killing Jacob. Right? He had a lot of problems and issues in the family later on he's about to get married sees the love of his wife Rachel and on the wedding night right talk about a surprise on the wedding night his father-in-law switches the two daughters so instead of marrying Rachel he was given Leah right imagine the bed the honeymoon the flowers and you wake up in the morning and that's not who I thought it was right after that, his father-in-law would change his wages 20 times as he's working for him. The love of his life, Rachel, would die in childbirth. His daughter, Dinah, would be raped. His two sons, Levi and Simeon, in, in an act of rage and revenge, would murder an entire town. And his favorite son, Joseph, he would believe for years was killed by a wild animal. I don't know if your life has been this bad. I don't know if your life has been this difficult. But yet we don't see Jacob complaining about life. We don't see Jacob shaking his fist at God or bitterness coming out of his heart to the Lord or the things of the Lord. We see him focused and fixed on the life that is yet to come. In Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, we could turn there and then we'll dive in. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, it gives us 
Jacob's great claim to fame within the hall of faith. And there's some amazing men in here. There's men, it's probably speaking of Daniel, men who held back the mouths of lions, men who put to flight the enemies of the Lord. There's amazing men, amazing instances of power and strength and might. So what's Jacob's claim to fame within the book of Hebrews? Chapter 11, verse 21. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So I can imagine getting into heaven, running into Daniel. Hey, why are you in Hebrews 11? Oh, I shut the mouth of lions. What are you in here for? Uh, I leaned on my stick, right? That's not his claim to fame. What it's telling us here is in the greatest transition of life, going from life here on earth to life in eternity, Jacob was living in faith. He was giving blessings to his sons. He was trying to get his sons, his family to focus on the things of the Lord. He was looking to his true life, which comes afterwards. And family, that's a great instance of faith within our lives is how are you going to die how are you going to pass away? Are we going to be holding on to this life? Are we going to be screaming? Are we going to be trying to hold on? Or are we going to be at peace, ready to see the Lord? Makes me think of my grandma, Clara. Uh, she had a lot of different sicknesses. My granddad, he was always healthy, and yet he's the one that went quick. But she was always in and out of the hospital, in and out of the hospital. And the last time she was in the hospital, they got the test after seeing some things, and she got cancer. This is stage three or stage four. And her response was, wow, that's one I've never had before. That was her response. Again, her life, her focus wasn't on life here on earth. Her life, her focus was on the Lord, on heaven, on being right with the Lord. And that's how our lives should be lived. Not clinging to this earth with all that we have, with all of our might. But we should be looking to the kingdom that is still going to come. So we can go back to Genesis chapter 48, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel, he strengthens himself, and he sat up on the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So again, first and foremost, we see here, Joseph, man, he's a very good son. He truly is honoring his father and mother here. He's the second most powerful man on the whole planet. He's a vice president of Egypt. And yet the moment he hears his dad is sick, he drops everything. He grabs his two sons. He goes, he visits his dad. And what does his dad begin to speak to him about? His encounter with the Lord Almighty. Again, parents, is that what we are imparting to our kids? Are we speaking to our kids not about other people's encounters with God? Are we able to share with our kids our own encounters with the Lord? Have you done your due diligence? Have you done your responsibility as a believer to get away and spend time with God? 
Because first and foremost, we should be doing that. And the next thing we should be doing is imparting that, speaking to our sons and daughters about this. Again, he's about to pass away, and what he wants to talk to his son Joseph about is the time that he met with the Lord. The first time he saw God there in Luz, which would later be called Bethel in Genesis 28, verse 16 through 19. You can write that down. But there he falls asleep. He's running for his life. He has nothing but that same staff there with him. That's the only worldly possession he has. And yet the Lord would meet him there. He would see Jesus at the top of the ladder that leads men and angels back and forth between heaven and earth. He sees Jesus. He is the ladder. He is the door into heaven. And that's what he wants to speak with his son Joseph about. And then he tells him in verse 4, hey, you know what he said to me? What he said to my dad, Isaac, what he said to my granddad, Abraham, he said that he would make us fruitful and he would multiply us. And I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Jacob uses the few moments left in his life to remind Joseph of the promises and blessings that God had for him and his family. Again, how are we using our time, family? How do we want to use the most, right, the last few moments of life? Will we be imparting wisdom and blessing and promises of God? Or will we be washed away? Verse 5, now he tells him, Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, they shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died besides me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So what is Jacob doing here? Is he that... Crazy grandparent that's always trying to take the kids away, right? Trying to take the grandkids away from his kids. That's not what's going on here. You see, the woman who Jacob wanted to marry was Rachel. That's who he wanted to marry. That's the woman that he wanted. If it was up to him, he would have married Rachel and Rachel alone. But because of Laban and his sin, his conniving, his fleshliness, he threw Leah in there. But if it would have been up to Jacob... Truly, Joseph would have been his firstborn son. And in this time, the firstborn son would get the blessing, the double portion, the birthright. And here what Jacob is doing is he's giving Joseph, in a sense, the birthright by taking Ephraim and Manasseh and now bringing them into his own family, into the, right, the 12 tribes of Israel, so Joseph would get a double portion. Twice the amount of land would these two men, these two tribes have when the nation of Israel would come into the promised land. And it's interesting because Manasseh is the firstborn and his name means forgetfulness. He was the first son that he had in Egypt. And he says, I'm going to call him Manasseh. I'm going to call him forgetfulness because the Lord has caused me to forget all the affliction that I have endured. But now the second son, Ephraim, he calls him fruitfulness because he's seeing all the fruit that God has poured into his life. All the blessings that the Lord has given him. And in this sense, the Lord, through Jacob, will cause him to bless Ephraim, who is 
fruitfulness more so than Manasseh, whose name is forgetfulness. And these two sons, in a sense, will replace Joseph and Levi, or Simeon and Levi, with the land that's given to the tribes of Israel. And in verse 8, again, we see just the humanity here. If you've ever had a grandparent or a parent on their deathbed, right, certain things aren't functioning as good as they used to. Verse 8, it tells us, then Israel, he sees Joseph's two sons, and he says, hey, who are those two guys with you, right? Who are these? And Joseph says, Dad, those are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of the Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. He had the same uh, problem as Isaac. When he got older, he couldn't see. And then Joseph brought them near him. And he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face. But in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. Again, the gratitude within Israel. He's not here complaining about his ten sons. And how could they steal the time away from me with you? He's not complaining about Rachel passing away. He's not complaining about the hard life he's had. He's saying and giving glory to the Lord. Man, I thought I would never see you again. But God has blessed me so much that I'm able to see you. And I'm even able to see my own grandsons. Man, God has blessed me. Verse 12. So Joseph brought them from besides his knee. And he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand. And he brought them near to him. And then Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand to Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. See here, Jacob, he pulls an okey-doke, right? At the last moment... Right before he dies, he sort of switches things up on Joseph. But it tells us here, guiding his hands knowingly. Again, the Holy Spirit working through Jacob, he blesses the younger instead of the elder, which would go against the times, would go against the culture, would go against the norm. It's the same thing as Esau and Jacob. It's the same thing that has gone on through these families, which the Lord would bless. And both of these tribes would be blessed, but Ephraim would truly be greatly blessed. If you're into the history of the tribes and stuff like that, you can write down Isaiah chapter 7, verse 7, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 17, and Isaiah chapter 11, verse 13. And here Ephraim grows to the point of prominence and importance that they would refer to the whole entire northern nation of Israel as Ephraim. But now we go into verse 15. He changes. He looks to Joseph. He blesses Joseph. And he said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The word there for verse 15, the God who has fed me all my life, it is literally translated to the God who has shepherded me all my life. 
Family, why do you have food in your refrigerator? Why do you have a job? Why do you have the health that you have? Why are you in this nation? Is it because of you? Is it because of your might, your planning? Did you pre-plan your parents and what they would do and where they would be? Or do you realize all the goodness that we have in this life is because of the Lord? It's because of his shepherding. It's because of his care for us throughout our lives. He has guided us in the moments that we have loved him and been on fire for him. And he's also guided us in those moments when we are rejecting him and running far from him. Do you see that? Have your eyes seen that? Do you give the glory and the honor due to his name? Or do you live your life without thinking about God? Do you live your life without any gratitude to the one whom we owe everything to? How do you live your life? What do you do to make sure that your heart is working, that your lungs are working, that all of your internal organs are doing what they're supposed to do? What are you doing? It's all the Lord. It's all him. He is the one that has cared for us, that takes care of us. In Psalm chapter 23, verse 1 through 3, right, very famous psalm, very famous portion of scripture. We can turn there. And for each of us, our whole life is indebted to the Lord. Our entire eternal life, it's attached to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, it tells us, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And because he is my shepherd, verse 4, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. Are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Family, were you looking to in this season of life? Where are you looking to? David in this season, he's running for his life, saw the king, right? Imagine if the president, the whole entire United States government is chasing after you to kill you. And yet David, he's giving all the glory to the Lord. David, he's not freaking out. He's resting assured in who God is, in his plan, and in his presence. Is that us? What are you consumed with? Are you looking at every single portion of the news, every single portion of social media, what's pouring out of your heart? That the Lord, he's going to lead you and he's going to guide you? Or are you pouring out the latest thing that happened, right? Oh, can you believe they did this? Can you believe they did that? What's pouring out of your heart? Because as we're shaken in life, whatever is really inside is going to be coming out. And Jacob, as he's passing away, As he's breathing his final breaths, he's able to give God all the glory. My whole life is because of God and what he has done. He's the one that has shepherded me. Then in verse 16, back to Genesis chapter 48, he says, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Again, family, maybe you've lived a rough life. Maybe your life has been as bad as Jacob or even worse. 
If you have that friendship and relationship with God, you have more than enough to be thankful for and grateful for. If you've been saved from hell for all of eternity and given a relationship with Jesus Christ and the promise of heaven for all of eternity, you have more than enough to be grateful for and thankful for. You can write down John chapter 10, verse 11 and 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Family, do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ? And there's a difference, not know of, do you know him, right? A lot of people, they know who the president is. They know of the president, right? They know of this athlete. They know of this rock band. They know of this artist. Social media is a huge lie to us. We know of a lot of people, but we really don't know them. Do you know of God or do you know God? Do you know of Jesus Christ or do you know him intimately? Do you spend time with him? Do you speak to him? Because if you truly know him, then he's your shepherd. And if he's your shepherd and he laid down his life for you, he loves you, he cares for you, and he's going to protect us, he's going to lead us like Psalm 23. But you got to stay in the fold. You got to stay in the fold. You got to stay abiding and spending time with him. Again, Jacob's life, it was hard. It was extremely difficult. He got dealt some of the roughest seasons that life has to offer. And yet he's focused on God's protection and God's redemption over his life. We jump to verse 17 in chapter 48. It tells us, Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He knows the oldest son supposed to get the blessing. The oldest son supposed to be at the right hand. So he takes hold of Jacob, his father's hand. He removes it from Ephraim's head. He puts it on Manasseh's head. And Joseph says to his dad, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put forth your right hand on his head. Again, if you've ever had interaction with an older parent or grandparent, it sounds like everyday life, right? Verse 19, it tells us, But his father refused and he said, I know, I know what I'm doing, my son, right? He also, he'll become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of the nations. Again, through the Holy Spirit, Jacob, he knows exactly what he's doing, honoring the Lord and doing the work of God within these final moments of his life. And this shows us that the Lord doesn't always go by what's normal to society. The Lord doesn't always go by what's normal to our culture. But many times the Lord, he will go against culture and he will work in going against the social norms of our day. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a few verses there. The Lord has, man, a sense of humor in who he chooses and what he chooses for each of them to do. And maybe you're here and you say, I'm not good enough to serve the Lord. Maybe you're like Moses and you're saying, man, I have a stutter. I don't know where you're at, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it should give us great comfort in the Lord and who he chooses. And if you're here and you're saying the Lord needs to use me because if not, God is missing out. If you're here and you're saying, God needs to use me because I'm the best at this, man. I'm the best teacher. I'm the best worship leader. I'm the best usher. 
Ah, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a great portion of scripture for all believers. In verse 26, it tells us, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Again, God loves to go against what we as humans would say, hey, this is normal or this is the easy road or hey, this is what makes sense. So let's go this route. The Lord, he loves to do that. So often when the Lord comes and promises a woman that she's going to have child, what kind of a woman is it? It's a barren woman. It's a woman that's never had a kid before, and yet God's going to promise, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Lord, wouldn't it be easier if you spoke to that to, right, a fertile myrtle, right? A woman that has a bunch of kids, and you tell her, hey, I have this blessing. I have this promise for you. But yet that's not who the Lord works through. The Lord, does he bless Esau, the big, the strong one, the mighty man? No, he blesses Jacob, the younger one, the lesser one. During the time of Judges, God needs to call someone to free the nation of Israel from the Midianites, their oppressors. Does he choose the strongest one, the biggest one? No, he chooses Gideon, the one who's threshing wheat, hiding in a cave. That's who God chooses. When the Lord is looking for a new king to take over after Saul, does God choose, again, the tallest one, the most handsome, the biggest one? No, God chooses Jesse's youngest son, the one who's forgotten outside by the whole family. Again, imagine if you have a dignitary coming to visit your home. Would you leave any of your kids outside? It'd be kind of grimy, right? Hey, the vice president's coming home. Huh? Zach, stay outside cleaning the pool, right? Don't worry about it. That's what Jesse did to David, and yet David is the one whom God chose to be his king, to be a man after his own heart. Jesus, he needs a few disciples, he needs a few good men to lead the charge for Christianity all over the world. Does he pick the Pharisees? Does he pick the religious rulers? He picks a bunch of fishermen. He picks one guy that's going to backstab him and give him up. He chooses 12 knuckleheads to change the whole world. And one of the best ones in the book of Acts, right? The Lord, he sends one to speak to all the Jews, and he sends one to speak to all the Gentiles. He chooses Peter to speak to the Jews, and he chooses Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. That's the one whom God chooses to go and speak to the Gentiles. So again, family, are you being about your father's business? Lots of times it's not going to be what you're super comfortable with. Sometimes it is. But are you willing to take steps of faith for the Lord? You see, God, he doesn't share his glory with anyone. So he knows those who are humble enough to serve the Lord and give him all the glory. 
And he knows those who are so prideful that unless God takes them completely out of their wheelhouse, they're going to pride in themselves. Again, may we be willing to say, Lord, whatever you have for me, Lord, whoever you want to use, right? Lord, I'm willing, I'm open. There's multitudes of people waiting there for Jesus and the disciples to feed him. What does Jesus do? Does he take them to the buffet, right? Does he go with Peter to the ocean and catch a multitude of fish to feed all the people? No. Little boy with his Lunchables, right? A couple pieces, of, a couple loaves, a couple fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. Are we willing and available for God to use us in ways that may be against the culture and ways that we may not be comfortable with? We go back to Genesis chapter 48. And in verse 20, it tells us, So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before, right? He gave him the higher treatment, the higher honor before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God. But God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Again, if you've had someone that you love pass away, you usually remember, right, your last conversation with them. The last thing they said to you. And yet the last thing Jacob says, right, one of the last things he says, he says, hey, I'm dying. But God will be with you and he's going to bring you back to the land of your fathers. Again, Jacob continues to remind his sons of the promises of God for their lives. Jacob, he's truly passing the torch on to Joseph. Parents, are you passing the torch on to your kids? Are you able to draw from your own well, the own pool of your relationship with God? Are you able to pull out from there and give it to your kids and say, hey, you keep running. You keep seeking the Lord. Is that where you're at? I was a youth pastor for a couple of years, and man, one of the strangest things ever, we were having our doulos program. There's none of the dads here, so don't look around. We had our doulos program, and it's where the, the kids, they would spend a week or two weeks, four weeks living at the church, and the parents are dropping off their kids, and this dad drops off his son. He slaps me on the back, and he says, make a man out of him. Like, dude, I got him, I got him for two weeks, man. You've had him all your life. I got him for two weeks. Again, parents, hopefully that's not us. Hopefully we're not saying, hey, you, you make him a man. Hey, you, you make them a woman of God. But may we be living that example. We know Jacob was messed up. We know he did a lot of terrible things in his life. But once he wrestled with God and gave up, he gave up his entire life to the things of the Lord. And he was completely changed. He gave the torch to his son. He knew who his father was, Isaac. He knew who his grandfather was, Abraham. And now Jacob is passing this torch of this so, this such a special relationship with God. And he's saying, okay, Joseph, now you go and you run with it. You go and you run with this relationship with God. Charles Spurgeon, he has this quote talking about how the Lord, he always has the next man up willing to be used by God. He says, if Abraham dies... There's Isaac. If Isaac dies, there's Jacob. 
If Jacob dies, there's Joseph. And even if Joseph dies, Ephraim and Manasseh survive. The Lord shall never lack a champion to bear his standard high among the sons of men. He says, we have too much of fine language, too much of eloquence, and little full and plain gospel preaching. But God will keep up the apostolic secession. Never fear of that. When Stephen is dying and being martyred, Paul's not that far away. And when Joseph is taken up, into, when Elijah is taken up into heaven, he leaves his mantle behind him. Again, family, I know the world looks crazy. I know every day we think it can't get any worse. Churches can't get any worse. Remember, the Lord is still using people. The Lord still has people that are willing to have their whole entire lives devoted to the things of God. I just pray. I just hope that we are those people that are saying, Lord, I want to be the next Elijah. I want to be the next Elisha. Lord, would you use me? I hope that's truly our heart's desire and the fruit of our life because that's where we see if it's really our heart's desire. Genesis chapter 49 Verses 1 and 2, now Jacob, he calls all his sons together, right? He sits down with Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, but now he calls all his sons together. And he says, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. And it sends Jacob, he's gathering all his sons around him, and he's about to give his last will and testament. But he's also going to pronounce blessings upon his 12 sons, and he's also going to give prophecies about them, about their future tribes, and even prophecies of the coming King, Jesus Christ. These will be the first prophecies ever spoken by a man in the Bible. God is the first one to give a prophecy with Adam and Eve. He says, hey, One day from your seed, there will be one who will come and crush the serpent's head. But he's going to bruise his heel. So again, imagine 12 brothers, their dad's passing away. What am I going to get, right? And am I going to get the Lamborghini? Am I going to get the camel? What's going to happen? And uh, again, we see a lot of family drama within here. Verse 3, Reuben, the firstborn, you are my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. And I don't know if you could see Reuben there, right? Like, yeah, dad, I'm the best. I'm amazing. Yeah, I'm powerful. I'm excellency. I have dignity. I have all your strength. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. What Jacob is referencing here is in Genesis chapter 35, Verses 19 through 22. And we don't know if this is the first time Jacob ever spoke to Reuben about the sin that he did against Jacob and against their family. Jacob, he's dealing with the loss of Rachel. Again, the love of his life. And what does Reuben, his eldest son, do in the midst of the season where his dad is in mourning? He goes and he takes one of his other wives and he sleeps with her for a moment of pleasure. What we see is that it wasn't Reuben trying to take power away from the family because he was the firstborn. That was his right. The moment his dad would pass away, now he would be the one that was in charge of the home and everything that was going on. Reuben 
for a moment of pleasure gave up all the blessings of being the firstborn of Jacob. He gave up all the blessings of being able to be a part of, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Reuben. He gave all of that up for one moment of pleasure. And family, there's people like this in Scripture, and they always bum me out. I'm getting more gracious before I just get me mad, but now they just bum me out. Right? People that have so much potential, and yet they never see it through because they gave in to sin. You have Saul, so much potential. He's bigger than everybody else, stronger than everybody else. He has so much humility. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and yet his pride gets in the way. You have Samson, so much potential. The angels foretell his birth in the same way of Jesus and of John the Baptist. And yet because he couldn't keep his temptation and sin in check, he passes away being blind, being led by the hand by a little kid. There's so many people throughout scripture had so much potential. You have Solomon, so much potential, wisest man that has ever lived, richest man that has ever lived, prays a beautiful prayer for wisdom instead of money and gold, and yet in the end of his life, he has a thousand wives. His heart is given up to the pagan gods. And again, family, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you have a lot of potential for the Lord. Maybe you have a lot of potential for life. But if you do not keep sin in check, your life will be mediocre at best. If you don't keep sin and lust in check, you will be unstable as water and you will not excel in this life. James chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, it tells us, Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways and family that's why we have to keep our focus on the lord we have to keep our focus on god's word because if we're going back and forth you're going to be unstable your life is not going to have the blessings of god in it because god cannot bless a life that's constantly given over to sin again at best your life will be unstable at best your life will be mediocre at worst, it's going to cost you everything and everyone that you love. Got to stay away from sin. He had all the potential, but for one moment of pleasure, he gave it all up. May we stay firm with the Lord. May we have that endurance to stick with God. Right? All of us, we have different personalities. I have an extreme personality. Whatever I do, I'm going to do it. At 100% or at 0%. It's just one extreme or the other. That's just the way it goes. There's this thing that's called yo-yo dieting. And you have people, they'll go on a diet and in three months they'll lose 30 pounds. And you're like, whoa, man, you've lost a lot of weight. But then Thanksgiving comes, Christmas comes, and in one month, man, wow, you gained 30 pounds all in one month, right? And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And when they go to the doctor, does the doctor say, hey, we just average it out and you're good, you're healthy? No, the doctor says, hey, this isn't good. This isn't good for your health. And for our spiritual health, if we are yo-yoing, right? If one season we're dedicated to God, we're dedicated to church, we're dedicated to serving. But now the next season comes and we forget the address to church. We forget how to get to church. It's not good for us. 
That's not the way we should be living. You will be like the ocean tossed around wherever the wind blows. May we be the wise man that not only do we hear the word of God, but we're quick to obey it. Because then no matter what comes across our life, we'll be strong in the things of God. Verse 5, right? And and now imagine the rest of the brothers. They're all staring there, right? This is awkward, right? (laughs) This is awkward. What in the world is going, hey, dad, can you just have an attorney write all these things down? And after you pass away, he can sit us down and speak to us. And it gets a lot worse before it gets any better. Uh, Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. This is referencing Genesis chapter 34, verse 25 through 29. Their younger sister, Dinah, gets raped. And in this day and age, the law would say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So instead of just murdering the man that raped Dinah or murdering that man in his household, these men go on to tell the leader of that city, hey, if you have all the men in the city circumcise themselves, then we'll give you Dinah as his wife. So they really liked Dinah. He really liked Dinah. Shechem is his name. All the men in the entire city, they circumcise themselves. And these men use a holy symbol of the Lord so that as all the men in the city are hurting, right? No anesthesia. There's no doctor's offices. There's nothing. After all the men in the city are hurting, on the third day, they go through the city and they kill every single man. They plunder the city. They take all the livestock. They take all their wealth. And instead of executing justice for their sister, they sought out revenge. And that is the danger with anger. That's the danger with revenge. Simeon and Levi, they are instruments of cruelty. And because of this, they're going to be scattered all around Israel. And it's amazing because this is exactly what happened. In Joshua 19 verse 1, you could just write it down. The tribe of Simeon, they got absorbed into the tribe of Judah and they were just spread out around the nation of Israel. But the Levites, they had no inheritance. They had no land allotted to them. But after the nation of Israel, when they come out of Egypt... And they're there, Moses, he's being very spiritual, very holy. He's out there on the mountain speaking with God. And right, the saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. As Moses is away, the whole nation of Israel, they go nuts, really. And Aaron has a great idea of, hey, let me make a a molten calf, right, lavaquita. Let me get a little golden lavaquita here. And now, hey, Israel, this is the one who freed you from Egypt. Worship this little golden calf that I literally made just in front of you. And now the whole nation of Israel jumps into worshiping a pagan idol instead of worshiping the Lord that just freed them. And yet the only tribe of Israel that was willing to stand up for righteousness, the only tribe of Israel that was willing to turn away from the idolatry was the tribe of Levi. So now instead of having no land and no inheritance, in Joshua chapter 13 verse 33 it says, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance. 
as he said to them. So now instead of being one of the tribes furthest away from the Lord, with no blessing, God brings them right near and dear his heart. And now they are the chosen people of God within Israel, and God himself is their inheritance. And instead of having one area of Israel, they would have over 45 cities all around Israel that would belong to the Levites. Again, family, our relationship with God, whether we seek him or not, whether we stand for righteousness or not, it'll bring fruit in our life. And if we stay away, and there's going to be fruit in our life. Verse 8, now it goes to Judah. It says, Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. Right? A little symbol here. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Again, the Lord Speaking in and through Jacob, he's able to give this great prophecy of Judah and who he is and who will one day come from him. What he's saying is, hey, all the important kings of Israel will come from you. David, he's from the tribe of Judah. And later on, Jesus Christ himself will be known as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Revelation chapter 5 verse 5. We sing this song sometimes so amazing, right? Is he worthy? Revelation 5 verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Again, Judah, it's going to start off as a little baby lion, but later on it will grow and it will be Jesus Christ himself who will rule and who will reign. James Boyce, he gives us great insight. He says, the firstborn normally had two rights. First, he would be the leader of the family, the new patriarch. And secondly, he was entitled to a double share of the inheritance, receiving twice as much as any of the other brothers. So again, because of Reuben's sin, he lost out on the blessing and on being the leader of the home. So what does God do? He gives the double blessing to Joseph through his two sons, and then he gives to Judah the one who's going to become the leader of the home and of the family. The scepter, right, that staff of power for kings, it will never depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Jesus comes. And now he begins to speak about the second coming of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. To him shall be the obedience of the people. Two important scriptures in Romans chapter 14, verse 11. You can just write it down. It says, For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Linked up with this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, 
and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, family, these scriptures, they should either comfort us or they should really concern us. Because here in this life, while we're alive, you get the blessing, the privilege to choose to bow the knee now to Christ. Saying, Jesus, you are the King of kings. Lord, you are the Lord of lords. You are the ruler. We get that joy and that privilege now. And if we do that now, we'll get to spend the rest of eternity with him in heaven for all of eternity. But if we live our lives in this planet, saying, no, Lord, I'm the king of my life. I'm the ruler of my life. I decide what I get to do. I'm the boss of my life. If that's the way you live, at one point you will have to bow the knee and you will have to confess with your mouth. But at that point, it will be too late to have heaven for all of eternity. And then instead, it will be hell for all of eternity. So again, that's why we should cry out and say, Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I am a sinner. I deserve hell for all of eternity. You came from heaven to die, to resurrect, to take my sin. And now I devote my life to be obedient to you and your word. And if you pray that prayer, if you live by that, hey, you get to have heaven for all of eternity. And you get to have a friendship and relationship with God for all of eternity. Verse 11 through 12, again, this is talking about the second coming of Jesus. It says, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. These are some of the same prophecies talking about when Jesus comes back, that little kids, if your kid's like playing with reptiles, little kids are going to be able to play with vipers and stick their hands in the den of cobras. And nothing bad's going to happen. They're going to be able to lie down with the lion. And they're going to be just chilling, hanging out. Lion's going to be with the lamb. There's going to be no war. And yet, people will still choose to serve the devil. And a thousand years of perfection. So again, we don't turn away from God because of the evil going on around us. We turn away from God because of the evil that is living inside of us. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Zebulun, where this tribe would land in the nation of Israel, would be to the northern coast, which is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So they would literally have ships all around them. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good, and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Issachar in Numbers 26, it gives us a census of the people of Israel as they come out. And they were the third largest tribe. So they were a big tribe. They had a lot of potential. But it tells us that they were lazy. That they became a band of slaves. That's what happened to them. Verse 16 and 17 Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. We mentioned people with a lot of potential that don't see it through. That's exactly what happens with the tribe of Dan. 
They would start off producing judges like Samson, like great men of God. But after that, it would all go downhill from there. When the nation of Israel gets split into two after Solomon's death, to the north, Jeroboam would go there and he would make a pagan altar there in Dan. If you've been with us to Israel, that's that altar that's up there, the four pillars. They put the metal that's around all the different creeks and rivers, the nice hike we get to do. But this is that altar that's there. So now what would happen is when neighbors to the north of Israel would want to come into Israel and see this nation and people that all the world had heard of the amazing miracles that their God had done for them, how they were so different from the rest of the world. The moment they come into Israel, the first thing they see is this giant pagan altar. So again, they would fall back saying, man, they're just like the rest of us. They would fall back. Verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And in the midst of all of these promises and blessings, Jacob stops to again saying, hey, Lord, I'm waiting for your salvation. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ and him crucified. David Guzik, he says, the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua Wa. At this point in the prophecy, when Jacob was near death, he called out for God's salvation. Knowingly or not, Jacob called out for Jesus. And again, I don't know where you're at in life, but if you get that, that blessing and curse, if you get that privilege to be with someone as they're passing away, make sure they've cried out for that salvation in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And if you're here now and, man, you have no peace, just watch the news. You look at social media and you're more anxious than ever. I know anxiety's up, suicide's up, drug use is up. And for you kids, you teenagers here, you have more and more anxiety, more and more stress. Better cry out to Jesus. You need to call on the name of the Lord and then live in it. It's not enough just to say Jesus, right? That's not enough. You need to live in those truths. When it says believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, believing in your heart means that you're living by it. You don't get in shape by just saying, hey, the gym is good, the gym is good, the gym is good, the gym is good. No, you actually need to go to the gym. There needs to be work attached to your faith. And the same is true with Jesus. Just because you say he's Lord, just because you say he's your Savior, just because you say he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, does not mean you have a friendship and a relationship with him. You have to walk in that. you got to have to walk and live like you really believe it. 